Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Our fourth panelist at the Irish Examiner International Women's Day 2020 networking breakfast event is Karen Underwood. Karen's a singer, she's a performer, and my God, what a storyteller this lady is. She's a Chicago native, but she's been living in Cork for many years now with her wife Mary and their blended family. She's the creative director of Cork's Soul in the City Festival, and she's dedicated more than 30 years of her life to working and volunteering with people with disabilities. Karen treated us to an incredible rendition of a Nina Simone song. She got a standing ovation, and I think everyone in the room was blown away by the power of her voice and the power of her message. Here she is telling us in her own inimitable way. Karen, we're going to talk a little bit about barriers. Yeah. Because sometimes we take things for granted, we take our privilege for granted, we take our unconscious biases for granted, and barriers is something that you have plenty of experience of, and you're going to share some of that with us today, I think. I am. How much time do we have? <laughs> well, uh, Karen, <laughs> you tell us your story and we'll work away, girl. I think there's, it's been said that there's a special place in hell for women who don't support other women. Absolutely. Uh, Madeleine Albright, um, first Secretary of State of the United States of America. And uh, I have to go back before I can be here. So just briefly. Um, I was born in 1963 in Chicago, Illinois, at a time when racial tensions were extremely high in America. My first childhood memory was that of the death of Dr. Martin Luther King. Wow. So the trauma began at that time. Turning on the television as I got older, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, looking at the reels and reels of news, black and white images of dogs being turned on black people, hoses being forced on black people in my America, the country that was m my country, uh, the country that not only was I born in, but before you ask me where I'm from, I'm from America. My granny was born there, my great-grandmother was born there, my great-great-great-grandmother was born there. So don't ask me what part of Africa I'm from. That's for 23 and me. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, the 60s happened. The 70s happened and my mom and dad bought a house on the south side of Chicago. And we were the first black family to move into a predominantly white neighborhood. Wow. And I had, in my neighborhood, within two years time, every single white family left except for one. And I had a friend, his name was Jeff. And I talk about this in my show, The Nina and Me. And Jeff had a big brown spot on, the, on his face. So I used to say to Jeff, you're sounding like me. <laughs> As you do when you're young, you know. And uh, I remember coming home from school one day, having played in this boy's house probably three or four times a week, and he was gone. No goodbyes, no nothing. Family moved, never saw him again, don't know where he went. So that's the beginning of how my life went. You would think that things would change in the 70s, 
but they didn't. Roots by Alex Haley came out. You remember that? Yeah. yeah. Remember Kunta? Yeah. Uh-huh. Well, <laughs> yeah, Roots came out. More trauma. Mom and daddy decide, you know, we want you to be very well educated. So they send me to a school that is private, Catholic, 1,400 white girls and 40 blacks. And I was one of those that was accepted in that school. Except I had to, even though it was a Catholic school and I had some protection, I had to go through an all-white neighborhood at a time when busing was the thing to do in America for me to get educated. Because, if, because the educational system in Chicago is tax-based. So that meant that I was going to be forcibly removed from the South Side to an all-white community to be educated. And my mama said, uh-uh, no, you won't. So they worked, two working-class people, and they paid for me to have private tuition to go to an all-white school, and I thought I was safe. But my first experience uh, among many with racism in America, and this is about white privilege, but it's a love story, believe it or not. And my first um, experience was going into Queen of Peace High School and get on the bus one day, and I sneezed. Now, this was before Corona. <laughs> so it, was, it was just, you know. And I said, I said, excuse me. And a, a young white fella stood at the back of the bus, and he cleared his nose and his throat, and he spat in my face. And he told me, he told me, there is no excuse for you niggers. Now, I'm going to say that. I said the N-word, okay? I have to own it. I have to own it. Oh my God. And uh, that went on from that to being in a community where I was trying to go to school, trying to learn, but I was being harassed every day. Niggas go home. Nigga want a watermelon. A day after day after day after day. That was my experience. So my bricks and mortar were set. The barrier was set, if you understand what I'm saying. Absolutely, yeah. And my daddy told me because you know, he worked for the water distribution of Chicago. And he said, Karen, <clears throat> nothing wrong with white folks. <laughs> you just can't trust them. <laughs> I internalized that and paired it with the trauma of all the visual images I had in my past, the experiences that I had in my past. And I decided, okay, that's how I'm gonna live my life. But I tried then, I went to university in the 80s and I thought I was blessed when I got this roommate who was a few years older than me. And I thought she would be able to show me the ropes and I was so happy. And she came into the room one day and I was listening to the one two hour session that we had a week of black music, soul music. You know I'm a soul diva and all that, you know? So I'm listening to my music. And she says to me, are you listening to that nigger music again? So, there has been more and more and more and more of that. And I'm not saying this to play the race card and make you feel bad. This is a love story, mm -hmm. believe it or not. So things happened in life, lots of racial things. Just imagine that. And then I move because of education, because of hard work, to an all-white community in the suburbs of Chicago. And I meet a woman, her name was Beth Porter Clinton, Irish-American. And she had to be the friendliest white chick I ever met in my life. <laughs> she was a biscuit-making, basketball-playing girl who loved sports. And sorry, Aoife, is it? Yeah. She was way too athletic for me, <laughs> way too fit. So she wasn't the kind of chick I'd be hanging around. 
if you understand what I'm saying. Because I wasn't about that, that hiking life, you know, hiking and all that. And, uh, but she was really friendly. Years and years passed, and I had my firstborn uh, daughter, and she came to visit me. And my mother had cooked up enough food, I, I think, for the whole Southern Baptist community of the world. <laughs> and I mean, I was in a, a, a small, big enough two-bedroom apartment in an affluent area, but there was no way I was going to be able to house all that food. And Beth said to me, Karen, you can use my refrigerator. And I said, well, how, how am I going to do that? And she said, I'm going to give you a key. Now, me and Beth have been friends. I just have to rush the story forward because it's quite long. And uh, we've been friends for maybe at this stage six or seven years. But I didn't know we were friends. We couldn't be friends because she was white. We couldn't be friends. So that barrier was, was still there. So she says to me, Karen, I'm going to give you the key. And I said to her, you mean you don't think I'm going to steal everything you got? Oh, my God. And she looked at me and just laughed and gave me the keys. She said, I was going to get another key cut just in case you have to get in and out of the apartment. Um, I'll come back and get the key and I'll give you a... And I thought, yeah, she's the best white girl in the world. <laughs> but she's not really my friend. She's just a nice white girl, you know? And uh, years went by and she came to me after my second-born son that you know about, who died by suicide. And she said to me, Karen, she said, um, um, I have some news for you. And I said, what's your news? She said, I'm moving to Minnesota. And I didn't realize she was my friend until then. And my eyes filled up with tears. But I, I shrugged it off, you know, because you know, like, like you, you got to be tough. You got to be, you know. And she looked at me, she said, why are you looking so upset? She said, Karen, it's a six-hour drive from here. And I said, okay, Beth, tell me where the closest hotels are to you, and I'll book in a hotel, and me and my husband and the two kids will come and visit you. Hotel? You're going to stay with me. And I thought, OK, right. <laughs> and we did manage to get there a year later. But this is how trauma, racial trauma, mm -hmm. can impact a person. This is what I'm talking about, a love story. And uh, she, we, we pack up, we go to Minnesota, we go to her house. And in my mind's eye, she must have a separate quarters for us. That was in my head. That was in my heart, believe it or not. She must have a. Maybe it's the basement, or maybe it's the attic, but it won't be. Maybe, you know, I didn't know. And then she had me, uh, she said, Karen, she came to my room. She said, don't use your shower, because my shower is better. It has a power shower. I'm like, she's going to let me put my feet in her shower? And then it was time for the meal. And I was looking for the different cups and the different plates and the different cutlery that I thought I would have. This is in the 90s. I'm still walking with that trauma. I'm still carrying that trauma. And I still didn't believe she could be my friend because she was a white chick. I stayed there for the weekend with my son, and it was and my daughter and my husband, and it was his fourth birthday. And she baked him a chocolate cake, and she was the kindest, most wonderful soul I could possibly imagine. And what one woman did for me, one person, well, she broke down the barriers of difference, and she created a bridge of equality. 
She believed before I knew that we were equal. And that was just as good as. Now, I haven't seen Beth, I hadn't seen her for 21 years, but we had been on the phone. We've been on social media. We've done lots of things, you know, through social media, but I hadn't visited her. She was the only friend of all my so-called homies that flew from Minnesota, where she lives, to visit me in Cork. So when I went home last Thanksgiving, I booked a plane ticket, and I went to spend two nights with my friend. And I took off the, the, the barricade. I removed it. And I told her this story that I'm sharing with you today. She didn't even know. She had no idea of the impact that she made on my life, created a bridge for me to walk over, to sit on this panel today, to be in this homogenous Ireland. I mean, God, we are few in numbers, even though it looks like there's a lot of us. <laughs> <laughs> To be here, to be my true self, to be a singer, to be a performer, to tell you this story, to live my truth. One woman. Thank you. That's okay. You have absolutely 100%. I have to sing a song about this, if that's okay. <laughs> Sorry. You know I'm from a gospel tradition, and uh, I'm going to sing this song a cappella. It's a song called Consummation by Nina Simone, and it describes exactly the way I feel walking in the world today. I may or may not be able to hit every note, but I'm gonna give it my best shot. I think I'll be all right. <laughs> <laughs> Peace divine. 
And now we give thanks, give thanks for each other. For it is done, and peace forever, for we Tara, please do. Can't, that's, uh, that's sort of where we should finish in a way. It's I know. Just, uh, and thank you for letting us hear your story and your experiences. One person. One person, but that's the thing. So we're here and we're asking for our space at the table. That's kind of what yes. today is about. Mm -hmm. When we get our space at the table, we have to look and broaden it out. We cannot go, I'm in, and then pull up the ladder behind us. Pulling up the ladder, it isn't just about becoming the CEO of companies, maybe about changing the structure of the company to make it more diverse. Change the whole thing, change the whole system. We don't have to mimic what's already there. With great power, because we are all powerful as individuals, one person, one story, one person who reaches out to you. The grassroots movement that made repeal was, there was no one person or one organization that made that happen. It was all of us together, all reaching out and holding each other's hands. But with great power, which we all have, comes great responsibility. That's right. Spider-Man. And, uh, and if we're going to climb those glass buildings from the outside uh, or the inside, we, we need to budge up as well. So we need to make, ask who else is in the room in terms of disability, in terms of, of um, people who are trans, all kinds of sexualities. We, we need to, and, and race, of course, religion, who's, who's being left out. And that's up to all of us individually too. So that's what I that's Thank you. Yeah. We can all do it. I don't know what to say now, lads. I <laughs> I'm going to ask you to take your seats again and thank you from the bottom of our hearts for sharing and being so kind. And being so open, like, really, it's not, it's not an easy thing to do. And thank you for trusting all of us to share all your stories. On Formative, middle school kids from New York City public schools interview a phenomenal collection of grown-ups. Me, like, I don't know what I want to do. You don't have to have all the answers. I feel like a lot of people's favorite topics are, like, interest in their life. That is a really good answer. The podcast where the leaders of today are interviewed by leaders of tomorrow. Listen now at newyorkedge.org slash formative or wherever you get your podcasts.